You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, I'm going to welcome everyone back to their seats. If you want to grab a last coffee or pastry, feel free to do that. On your way back, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 11, we're going to be to verses 1 through 13. Luke 11, 1 through 13. If you're using one of our hardback black Bibles, that's on page 869. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one off the resource table. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word, so feel free to take that home. We, we've seen that our supply of Bibles is getting less, which is great. That means some people are taking them, which we want. So feel free to grab those. We still have two totes of boxes or Bibles, so we have plenty. So grab them, use them. We want you to have them. Again, page 869. <clears throat> so Luke 11, 1 through 13 We're wrapping up our series on prayer this week, and we've called this series, Teach Us to Pray. We've borrowed the words from one of the disciples in Luke 11, verse 1. And like the disciples, we've acknowledged together that we can feel a bit lost in prayer at times. The first week, I asked you to raise your hand if you ever felt confused or frustrated with your prayer life, and almost everyone raised their hand. We can all feel that along with them. And today, as we end our series, we're going to try to better understand this simple model of prayer that Jesus has given us. And Jesus gave it to us so that we can grow in our practice of prayer. And so if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's Word, I'll read verses 1 through 13 of Luke 11. The words will appear on the screen beside me as well. I'll read and you can follow along. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened." What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? This is the word of the Lord. Grab a seat and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people. 
that in it you have told us about who you are and what your heart is for us. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. And so here as we open it together, we ask for your help. God, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we learn something new, there's always a point in the process when we realize how much we have yet to learn about that thing. Now, this has happened to me several different times in life with varying degrees of consequence. One very unfortunate time was when it was 20 degrees below zero in downtown Minneapolis. I had to get from our old church building to the government building downtown because I had to file some paperwork that day so that I could officiate a wedding that same day. It was poor planning on my part, but I needed to get it done. And so uh, I was new to working downtown. I didn't know the skyways very well, but I mapped out my plan and I started on my journey. I got about halfway there and I realized I did not know where I was or how to get to the government building. Fortunately, I saw a postal service worker and I asked him for directions. He happened to be going in the same direction. And so I just walked with him all the way to my destination. I filed the paperwork, and then I started to return back to the church building, thinking, I know the way now. I'm just walking back the same direction. Well, again, I got lost about halfway. This time, there was no one to show me the way back to the building. And so I wandered around for a little bit and eventually realized my only option was to go down to street level, where I knew at least the way the streets worked. And so I stepped out into the 20 degree below weather. Now, it was one of those days where my breath would freeze on my beard almost immediately. Every block was painful to walk, and I had to go about eight or nine blocks. I did eventually get back to the church building. The couple got married. Everything worked out. But as I walked those streets downtown, I was painfully aware of how much I still had to learn about navigating the skyways downtown. And I desperately wished at that moment I had a guide to help me find my way. Fast forward several years, I navigated the tunnels or the skyways many times. Eventually, I knew my own way, and I became the guide for others who needed to find their way through the skyway. But this took a long time and at least one very painful experience before I figured it out. Now, we're doing this series on prayer because, like everything that we learn in life, we will all have these moments when we are acutely aware of how much we have yet to learn. Prayer is no different. And we can feel the analogous pain of walking on the street, if you will, in our prayer life, feeling like we're out in the blizzard while others appear to be warm and safe in the skyways above. The disciples are experiencing something a bit like that in our passage. They see Jesus praying and they wanted to know how to pray like him. And so they asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And in response, Jesus gives them some tools to help them learn how to pray. He gives them three, and they will form the outline for our sermon. The first is a model for prayer. The second is a motivation for prayer. And third is the means of prayer. Here's the message of the sermon. It's related to this, that Jesus gives his disciples these tools to grow in prayer because he wants us to become more competent in our practice of prayer. And he believed that we could become more competent at it. 
When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he didn't dismiss their request as foolish or unnecessary. He wanted them to grow, and he believed that they could. And so the first tool he gives them is this model for prayer. In verse 1, the disciple asks Jesus how to pray, and in verses 2 through 4, he gives them a simple model for prayer, which we've come to call the Lord's Prayer. At times, prayer will be more spontaneous, like an ongoing conversation with God, or maybe a request in time of need. But prayer also happens during dedicated and pre-planned, intentional times of prayer. In the life of Jesus, we see both. We see spontaneous prayer as he prays, kind of bursts out in thanks to God in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. And we also see intentional times of prayer in his life, like in Mark 6, 46, when he spends an extended amount of time in prayer after a grueling several days of ministry. And some of the most common questions I get about prayer really center on these dedicated times of prayer. People ask questions like, well, how often am I supposed to pray? Or they'll ask, when I do pray, how am I supposed to do it? What is that supposed to look like? And in answer to the first question, how often, there really is no definitive pattern throughout history of how often we are supposed to pray. Now, there's some maybe helpful examples. In the Old Testament, Daniel, for example, prayed three times a day. Some early monastic movements prayed seven times a day before they realized that was physically unsustainable to have seven extended times of prayer, so they kind of dispersed them among multiple people to pray them. During the Protestant uh, Reformation, a lot of the Reformers advocated two times of prayer a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. In the early 20th century, there's this little book called Quiet Time that became very popular through many of the college movements. And so for the last hundred years or so, Christians have been encouraged to have a daily quiet time. These dedicated times of prayer are really important, and they don't conflict with these spontaneous times of prayer. In fact, the two fuel one another. Together, they represent what Paul's instructions were to Christians to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. And if we think of prayer as communicating and communing with God, which we've kind of been talking about throughout the series, this is an important rhythm to develop. This is the way that we are often in relationship with Him. In my marriage with Megan, we have all sorts of ongoing communication throughout our week. We talk about schedules and details and life updates. But we also have these planned times to connect with one another. We'll go on dates or we'll take time to go on a walk. And these intentional times of connection are crucial for our marriage. They help to build the trust and the intimacy that's required for all the spontaneous times of communication to work well. And your prayer life will have similar rhythms to it, all sorts of spontaneous times of prayer, but also intentional and dedicated times of prayer. So there may not be a clear and definitive pattern throughout history of how often you're supposed to have dedicated times of prayer throughout your day, but what is clear is that God's people have always had some type of intentional and regular times of prayer built into their lives. The second question, though, still remains. Well, if I plan a time and I sit down to pray, what do I do? We can feel confused by that. I think that's really, in many ways, the primary question the disciples are wondering here. They're watching Jesus pray, and they're wondering, how do we pray? So Jesus gives them a model to help them learn. 
And when we learn something new, we typically go through four stages of development. Some call this the disciple's journey. It is built on the life and practices of Jesus, and it's reinforced by modern developmental theory. In stage one, you'll see someone doing something, and you'll think to yourself, I can do that. I want to give that a try. In this stage, you are unconsciously incompetent at that thing at the moment. Learning to drive is a good example of this. As a child, how many of you watched your parents drive and then thought to yourself, I can do that? Yeah, I see a child raising their hand. Yes, one of my children communicated to me the other day that they already know how to drive. In stage two, you attempt to do the thing that you saw someone else do, and you become consciously incompetent. You realize this is a lot harder than I thought. In the process of learning to drive, this is when you get behind the wheel and you realize this vehicle feels a lot faster when I'm the one driving it. It feels a lot bigger and harder to maneuver. Stage two is where I was when I was on the streets of Minneapolis at 20 below, acutely aware that I did not know how to navigate the skyways. This is the most difficult stage for people. It's usually the stage of development where we give up on whatever it was that we wanted to learn. I think this is the stage of development the disciples are in here in Luke 11. They had seen Jesus pray, they wanted to pray like him, and they realized it was much harder than they thought. Many of you in the room feel like you're kind of stuck in stage two with your own prayer life. You watch others pray. You want to learn to pray, but you feel a bit lost. In order to go from stage two to stage three, we need, we need three different things. The first is we need time to learn. You can't rush these sorts of things. You need time and repetition. The second thing you need is grace for yourself in the process. You're going to make mistakes. It's not always going to go well. You need to give yourself grace. And the third thing you need is a guide or a tool to help you grow in your competency. And that's what Jesus is offering his disciples here. He is their guide, and he's giving them a tool. In stage three, we have now learned to do the thing that we wanted to do, and we've become consciously competent. It requires us to focus on what we're doing all the time in order to do it, but at least we can do it now. In driving, it's when you put your hands at 10 and 2, and you're focused on the task. You're checking your mirrors, you're looking around, you're observing everything, you're always aware of what's happening, but you can do it now. And then finally, we get to stage 4. You've now become unconsciously competent. In driving, it's when you have gotten comfortable enough with the vehicle and the destination that sometimes you arrive and you can't even remember the drive itself. It's kind of scary, but we've experienced it at times, right? And when it comes to prayer, many of us, like I said, are like the disciples. We feel stuck in stage two. Well, Jesus wants us to grow in our competency. He gave us a model for prayer this simple but necessary tool that will help us move from stage two to stage three. The prayer itself has been repeated by God's people directly over time, and we can repeat it if we want to. That is a way to use the prayer. But I think one of the ways Jesus really gave it to us, the way he intended to use it, is more as a model. It's meant to be kind of an example of how to pray. He gave it to us like a map, if you will, each line like a road sign, giving us the contours of prayer. And today, based on Jesus's prayer that he gave, I want to give you five statements that you can pray, which express the primary content of the Lord's Prayer. 
They're just simple statements in kind of everyday language. The first is praise you, God. The second is thank you, God. Third is lead me, God. Fourth is sorry, God. And fifth is please, God. Now, here's a really simple way that you can apply this to your own prayer life. I've encouraged you to have a dedicated time of prayer, and the next time you sit down to do it, this is one of the ways you can engage in prayer. You can take each of these five statements, you can say the statement itself, and then just spend about three minutes just praying to that end. Just allow yourself to think about all the ways that you might pray these in your own words. So you can start with the phrase, praise you, God. And you can even use the words from Jesus, hallowed be your name. And then you can think about all the ways you can to praise God for who he is and what he has done. And then second, you can say, thank you, God. You can thank him for things in general, like salvation and creation. And then you can also thank him for specific areas of provision, for your friends and for your job. This calls to mind the specific ways that God has provided for our daily bread. Third, you can pray, lead me, God. This is a prayer of submission. We're saying, your kingdom come, God. Not my will, but yours be done. And then ask him to lead you in all the areas of life where you need guidance. Fourth, you can say, sorry, God. Jesus taught us to say, forgive us our sins, This is a prayer of confession and repentance. Here we acknowledge our need for forgiveness in general, and we also confess specific idolatry and sin, and we do so knowing that God has already promised he will forgive us in Christ. And then finally, we can say, please, God. Take time to make your requests of God. Ask for your needs to be met. Ask for the needs of others. And if you spend three minutes on each of those five statements, that will create a 15-minute time of intentional prayer that will be rich and meaningful for you. Over time, these prayers will become more familiar to you. Like driving home and not even remembering the drive, you'll learn to pray these types of prayers without even consciously calling to mind the model that Jesus, Jesus gave to his disciples. But be patient with yourself. It will take a long time before you become unconsciously competent in prayer. Sometimes we, ex- we think we have to get there right away. You don't have to get there right away. You have your whole life to keep growing in prayer and growing in that competency. It's okay if right now you have more questions than answers about prayer. My encouragement to you is just to start to try. Jesus did not leave us without any help. He wants us to grow in our competency with prayer He believes that we can, and so he gave us this simple model. Now, he didn't just end with a model, though, and so we move into this second tool that he gave us, which is motivation for prayer. Jesus knew that if he gave his disciples a model for prayer, but not motivation to keep praying, they would eventually quit, or they'd go back to old forms of prayer that they had known, or maybe adopt the prayer strategies of the religious leaders around them. I want you to stop and consider why people pray. Why do you pray? And I'm not even just asking that rhetorically. Ask yourself, why do I pray? What's my motivation for prayer? Some of you right now might even be thinking to yourself, you know, I don't actually know why. I guess I pray because someone told me I'm supposed to. Maybe I pray because I need something from God and 
I know that's kind of the way I'm supposed to do it. Well, Jesus taught this prayer more than once, actually. He also taught it in Matthew chapter 6. And in that passage, he directly confronts one of the wrong motivations that we can have for prayer. Matthew 6, 7 through 9, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. And then he goes on to offer an expanded version of the prayer we have here in Luke 11. Jesus here is confronting the mistaken motive that if we pray in a certain way, we will ensure that we will be heard by God and get what we want. Jesus here says that they heap up empty phrases in verse 7. It was common to pray long and endless prayers at this time, often trying to repeat this extensive list of names for the God to whom they may have prayed to, believing that if they got the right name in the right way, they could manipulate their gods and get the results that they wanted. Their many words were not just an attempt to flatter God through these titles. They were also nonsense syllables, kind of babbling, used as magical incantations, believing that if they repeated the correct mantra in the right way, it would unlock this certain response from God. I love the vivid imagery that Michael used last week when he commented on how we can tend to use prayer like a spiritual crowbar trying to pry something from God based on how we pray. And this is the motivation that Jesus is confronting here. Now, at this point, I do want to clarify a couple things, though. First, Jesus is not opposed to long prayers. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus spent all night in prayer. In Luke 17, or, or sorry, John 17, he has this lengthy public prayer right before he's crucified. So he's not opposed to long prayers, just ones that are used to manipulate. Second, Jesus is also not opposed to us to ask for things. God wants us to ask for things. That is part of prayer. What Jesus is confronting here is a motivation for prayer that centers on manipulating God to get the things that we want. And one of the key phrases there in chapter 6, verse 7 of Matthew is when Jesus says, they think they will be heard because of their many words or their many phrases. And then he reminds his disciples in verse 8, the Father already knows what you need before you ask. Jesus here is putting the motivation for prayer squarely on the one to whom we pray. It is the object of our prayers, not the quality of our prayers, that makes all the difference. The God to whom Jesus wants us to pray is not like the gods of other religions. He's not like the Gentile gods that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6. At that time, the Gentiles did not have a concept of a God who cared about them. And we can still have a tendency to think of God like that. Removed, distant, uncaring. But Jesus begins his prayer in Matthew 6 the same way that he does here in Luke 11 with a simple title for God, Father. We pray to a loving Father who delights to hear from his children. He knows what we need. Our motivation to pray is based on his loving invitation not the number of titles that we can memorize. So Jesus gives this model here in verses 2 through 4. And then in our passage, verses 5 through 13, he talks about the motivation. 
And I'm not going to exegete all nine verses. We've been doing that throughout the series. What I want to focus on is the analogy he uses of a father in verses 11 through 13. It is a simple analogy, but it is essential to our motivation for prayer. Jesus says that when a child asks for a fish, no good father will give a serpent. And when a child asks for an egg, no good father will give a scorpion. It is the father's job to provide for their child. It is not the child's job to say to the father, Hey, dad, can you make sure that you work enough to earn enough to buy food so that we can eat in our home? The father already knows the needs of their child before they ask. They know that their children will need food. In the same way, God knows our needs before we ask. That doesn't mean he doesn't want us to ask. He wants us to ask. He invites us to ask, at least in part to help us remember who it is that is providing for us. In our house, my children don't get to just eat whatever they want, whenever they want. At least they're not supposed to eat whatever they want, whenever they want. They're supposed to ask. And of course, we're going to provide for their needs. We may not give them exactly what they ask for. Some mornings, they might ask for pancakes, and we give them oatmeal. But we will never give them spoiled meat. They may not get what they want, but we will always give them what they need, and never something that will give them harm. This is the typical God-ordained order of things. And it is an analogy here that Jesus is using to help us understand prayer. Jesus is putting the motivation for prayer on the object of our prayers, which is supremely important when it comes to our understanding of prayer because it does two things. First, it confronts those who pray in pride, thinking that their prayers will be heard and fulfilled because of their eloquence and their holiness. The second thing it does is it comforts those who are afraid to pray because of their shame, fearing that God will reject them because their lives are imperfect or they don't know what to say. Jesus wants us to be motivated to pray, confident in our prayers, because of the one to whom we pray. We pray to a loving Father who knows what we need before we even ask. The third tool that Jesus gives us and the third tool we need to grow in our competency of prayer is the means of prayer or the power of prayer. Jesus ends his teaching here on prayer by calling to mind the Spirit of God in verse 13. He says, God will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And that is how Jesus applies this mini parable about the Father who knows how to provide. The parable focused on daily bread needs. Asking for eggs and fish are about provision. But when Jesus applies it to our relationship with God, he describes a spiritual need, the giving of the Holy Spirit. The entire parable has been set up as a lesser to greater argument. The lesser provider is the earthly father who meets the needs of his children for their food. The greater provider is our heavenly father who meets our deepest need by giving us himself. The power we have in prayer is that God has given us his spirit. It is the same spirit that Paul says in Galatians 4, 6 through 7, leads us to cry, Abba, Father. This is the same spirit that Paul says in Romans 8, 26, helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You may not know what to pray, but God's Spirit inside of you does. The means of prayer is not your eloquent words. It is not the length of your prayer, and it's not even to get that model Jesus gives perfect. The reason we can pray, the very power of prayer, rests upon the enabling work of God's Spirit inside of us. J.I. Packer once wrote that the common pattern we see in Scripture for prayer is that we pray to the Father through the mediation of the Son and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit empowers and enables our prayers. And as Packer says, Jesus mediates our prayers. He told his disciples in John 14, 13 to 14, to pray in his name. He said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That is why we so often end our prayers with that little phrase, in Jesus' name. When we started our series on prayer, one of you asked through that online form, you asked, who should we pray to when we pray? The Father, the Son, or the Spirit? Now, as Packer said, the regular pattern is to the Father, through the Son, enabled by the Spirit. That does not, though, mean that we cannot address the Son or the Spirit directly. We can do that. For example, Jesus is addressed directly in prayer at least three times in the New Testament after his ascension. But in the vast majority of cases, prayer is addressed to the Father, which is how Jesus taught us to pray in verse 2, Father, hallowed be your name. However, the essential power of prayer is not even that we get that formula right. That would turn our prayers back into magical incantations. The key here is to remember why we pray in Jesus' name. It is because on the cross, Jesus cried out on our behalf, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced separation from the Father so that through his death and resurrection, we could enter into fellowship with the Father. Our prayers are not based on our holiness or our character, but on the holy and perfect sacrifice of the Son. The means of prayer is the sacrifice of the Son and the enabling power of the Spirit. And so here's my exhortation to you today. When you pray, consciously think about what you mean when you end your prayer in Jesus' name. Be aware, help your mind become aware of the fact that your prayers are offered because of Jesus. It's easy for us to get into a pattern of saying the words in Jesus' name, but then forgetting whose record our prayers are actually based on. And so we need to consciously remind ourselves. R.A. Torrey was a graduate of Yale and one of America's most prominent preachers at the turn of the 20th century. And he was preaching in Australia when someone gave him an anonymous note right before he was about to take the platform. And the note read this, Dear Dr. Tory, I am in great perplexity. I have been praying for a long time for something that I am confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I have been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years, and I have tried to be a consistent one all the time. I've been superintendent in the Sunday school for 25 years, 
and an elder in the church for 20 years. And yet God has not answered my prayer, and I cannot understand it. Can you explain it to me? Tori was wise, and he discerned the subtext of the man's question. So he stepped up to the pulpit, he read the man's note, and then he explained the problem. He said, this man thinks that because he has been a consistent church member for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in the church for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. He is really praying in his own name. Now, the man was in all likelihood using that phrase, in Jesus' name, at the end of his prayers. But like many of us who do not hear the answer we want from God, we may start to say to ourselves, I'm a good Christian. I go to church. I tithe regularly. I serve the poor. I volunteer. I lead a Bible study. Why isn't God answering my prayer? Tory went on. He said, we must give up any thought that we have any claims upon God, but Jesus Christ has great claims on God, and we should go to God in our prayers, not on the ground of any goodness in ourselves, but in the ground of Jesus Christ's claims. Now, even if we don't fall prey to that first motive we talked about in Matthew 6, bringing lofty speech like the Gentiles, Like this man in Australia, we may try to bring our prayers on the basis of our own righteousness, but it will be just as ineffective. The means of prayer is not our right words, nor is it our lengthy speech, nor is it our own holiness. The means of prayer is summarized in that little phrase we use at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name. Three short words overflowing with meaning and depth to confront us of our pride and comfort us in our shame. They are the means by which we can pray. Now, you still may not get exactly what you want, but we can trust that God knows exactly what we need. So come confidently because we come in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.